Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. If you're looking for Ruth, it's right after Judges, and Judges is right after Joshua. So it's going to be toward the left side of your Bible, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, in a Bible study that I've entitled, From Bitterness to Betterness. Because the, Ruth, the book of Ruth is a love story unfolding through the lives of real, ordinary people. It's a story of God's providence, how God sovereignly takes the events of our lives and weaves them together for His will. Where we live, who we marry, where we travel. He takes the tragedies and the successes. He takes the hopelessness and infuses hope. And we open up in verse 1 of the book of Ruth, Chapter 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. A real literal famine has hit the land of Judah, specifically the area of Bethlehem where this man and his family lives. We learn in verse 2 that his name was Elimelech. Elimelech living in Bethlehem, dealing with the reality of a true famine, a scarcity of food that would lead to starvation and certain death. As the famine hits the land of Bethlehem, he takes his family to the Gentile, God-hating land of Moab. And he's seeking to avoid troubling times. He chooses not to endure the trial in Bethlehem of famine, But instead, in disobedience, I believe, he runs away to Moab, taking things into his own hands. And while this family doesn't know it yet, this is a really bad decision. Because in a short amount of time, ultimately, things would get worse for them in Moab, not better. And this precious family would be hurt deeply by three separate deaths. It was Warren Wiersbe that wrote, and I quote, Because God gave us freedom of choice, we can ignore the will of God, we can argue with the will of God, we can disobey the will of God, and even fight against it, but in the end, the will of God shall prevail, end quote. Just like the Bible says in Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of of his heart to all generations In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it speaks of God doing according to his will. Now, while Elimelech in Bethlehem is facing a literal famine, by illustration, you and I face a lot of spiritual famines. Most likely, we won't experience the scarcity of food in our own country. Perhaps, but probably not. But more often, we experience a famine spiritually. A lack of nourishment could be by our own doing or by the circumstances of life. And when we face troubling times, we are always left with a choice. And it's more than just two choices. 
sometimes three, sometimes four, but trials and difficulties, troubles and hardships always leave us a choice to make. We can face them, but facing them also often leads us to taking things in our own hands. You know, we'll face it, but then we'll take it and try to solve it ourselves. Sometimes we can avoid it and try to run away, as Elimelech does here. Famine has come, we'll go to where there's food, not considering the consequences that may await him. Or thirdly, we can embrace the trials of life and trust Jesus through them, allowing him to be our strength and our wisdom. Much like we learned in the life of Joseph at the end of his life, what did he say to his brothers as he looked them in the eye? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says to them, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. We can trust God through the difficulties and endure them in obedience, receiving the comfort and the encouragement that God has for us instead of attempting to run away. Well, notice verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. Now, if you like to write in your Bibles, I'm going to give you the meanings of some of these names. So the word, the name Elimelech literally means my God is king. So Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi. Her name means pleasant or delightful. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Malon means sickly and Chilion means tiny. And they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Orpah, her name means gazelle, and Ruth literally means friendship. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband." So a famine comes, a lack of bread, a lack of food comes to the city of Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. And Elimelech, who has God as his king, takes his wife, known as Pleasant, and runs away from the trial in Bethlehem to Moab. And it's there in Moab that Elimelech dies, and within a span of 10 years, Naomi loses her husband and both of her sons. You see, God, he has for us the names of the people whose lives are affected by this tragedy. Because you wonder, why cover the names and why cover the meanings of the names? Well, I want you to be reminded that this is not a fictional story that was made up in the minds of men and put into a book and called the Bible. These are real men and women with real lives and real tragedy and real decisions and real consequences to those decisions. You know, parents would often name their children one of two ways in the Old Testament. They would name them either by the circumstances surrounding their births or by their hopes and dreams for them. And we see the names of this, of this family, we see the names of the people of this family come to pass in a very real way. And over these 10 years, Naomi is in a bad place in a very difficult place, as it's described in verse 5, she survived her two sons and her husband. And it feels that way, doesn't it? It feels that way sometimes when trials come your way. 
where you're just surviving. And we understand what the meaning of the text is. Uh, when a spouse survives those that pass away, that's the word that you use. But in a very real way, going through difficulties in life has a sense of survival to it. Just making it through another moment, making it through another day. We read these five verses within the span of a few seconds, you know, a minute or so, but these five verses represent 10 years of her life. 10 years in a land that she didn't belong, 10 years away from the house of bread, 10 years of, well, first losing her husband and then losing her two sons. And so this family has suffered much. And notice in verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. The famine is over, and now it's time to return. And while she lost her husband and two sons, she gained a couple of daughters-in-law. Notice verse 7. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. Jehovah, the Lord, deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept been a hard 10 years for her and she gets word now that famine is over and she wants to go home no doubt she's tired and lonely she is hurting and she just wants to go home naturally Orpah and Ruth want to go with her to help her to encourage her to love her and may you be blessed with daughters-in-law like these two may you be blessed if you haven't already with a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law that will love you And as we'll learn with Ruth, cling to you to serve you and love you and encourage you through the good times and through the bad. If you happen to have a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law like that, blessed are you among many here today. Naomi wants them to go on with their lives. She doesn't want them to come with her. And she wishes and she blesses them and says, I hope Jehovah Yahweh deals kindly with you. I hope that you'll finally find the rest that you're looking at each in the house of your husband. You see, not only is Naomi overcome with grief here, but she's not really speaking like a spiritual woman. These 10 years has taken a toll on her spiritual life. As anyone that's endured a trial for 10 years can share. It has a way of wearing you down and she's not speaking like a spiritual woman. I don't want you to miss this. By telling these daughters-in-law to stay back she is not making the right decision. She, she's making a wrong decision. It was definitely the right thing for her to go back home, for Naomi to return home to that place of God's blessing. But it was also the right thing for her to take with her the girls that married her husband or married her sons so that they too might be blessed by the one true God, to be delivered from their idolatry. She's not speaking as a spiritual woman. And she's not making godly decisions. Might I just add that in the midst of great pain and difficulty, when there is a heightened emotion in your life, that is not the time to make big life decisions. 
You need to wait and let things calm down a little bit before you make big life-changing decisions. This would be a big life-changing decision. I don't want you to come with me. Stay here. In times of heightened emotion, be careful not to make decisions, well, that aren't led by the Spirit, but are led by emotion and by your feelings. Why wouldn't she want two unbelieving pagan women to come to Bethlehem and be introduced or participate in the worship of the one true living God? Now, the text doesn't tell us, but perhaps in the context of the big picture, she doesn't want, Naomi doesn't want to see the proof daily of her move to Moab, the loss of her children, the loss of her husband, and how Elimelech led them to a place of great difficulty outside the covenant of Israel. Maybe she doesn't want to deal with the reality of sin in her life. Like the Proverbs say, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We know for sure, as we'll continue on in the text, that bitterness has taken root in her heart. One of the hardest things to do to someone going through a trial and going through a difficulty is to tell them a hard thing about sin in their lives. It's hard to receive, and it's even harder to share. To come alongside and begin to walk someone along the path of how they have allowed bitterness to take root in their hearts. How they've gone from pleasure to bitter instead of bitter to better. And yet this is being revealed in Naomi's life that in the midst of her sorrow and grief, she's allowed bitterness to take root and not brokenness. The best thing for Naomi to do at this time is to repent and to humble herself before the mighty hand of God, not to cover things, not to avoid things. It's never a good idea to try and cover our sins or even worse, think that we can run away from them because we can't. When we try to cover our sin, it's proof that we really haven't experienced that conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's proof that we really haven't experienced godly sorrow as it relates to our connection with God. And here Naomi is just really taking things and doing things the way she wants them done. No mention of prayer or seeking God. Notice verse 10. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and you should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi's not speaking as a spiritual woman here and actually is stuck within the circle of herself. She's stuck Notice that she's relying upon her own resources. 
She's looking at herself and saying, look, don't come with me. I, I don't plan on getting married again. I don't plan on having children again. And even if I had children, would you wait for them all these years so that you could marry them and have a life? Just, just go. I cannot do anything for you anymore. And she limits herself, which is often, which is often what happens in times of difficulty. She limits herself to her own abilities, not remembering that God is limitless and could do far more than her mind could even conceive. And she's stuck in sorrow and grief. And she's stuck with this root of bitterness. Notice, it gets so bad that it says, she tells them in verse 13 that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's blaming God for the circumstances in her life. Those that study grief tell us that one of the stages of grief is blame combined with another stage anger and that's where we find Naomi she's mad she's upset and she's blaming God it's true isn't it it's easy to let circumstances change our view of God I mean think of it this way if things are okay and they're going the way that you desire them and the way that you want them, and you, you seem to have this life of smooth sailing, then man, hallelujah, praise the Lord. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. You know, that, that's, hey man, if things are happening the way I want them, then those phrases and those thoughts and those feelings seem to be much easier to express. But when things don't go our way, when things are bad, then so quickly we begin to think that God is mean, that he's forgotten us, that he's vindictive, that he doesn't love us, that he could care less about his creation. And it's not true. The only thing that's changed are the circumstances. You see, no matter whether good or bad is happening in your life and mine today, the Bible describes God as ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and does not forsake them. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. The Bible declares God in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Can I get an amen for that? He has not dealt with you and me according to our sins. Because if he did, we'd be wiped out. There should be no speaking of us what we deserve. We don't want what we deserve. I'm so grateful I didn't get what I deserve. But rather, God has extended grace. Not only that, it says, He hasn't punished us according to our iniquities. But instead, the very wrath of God, the pain and penalty of her sin, was poured out upon His Son, Jesus Christ, as He hung on a Roman cross, dying a torturously long, painful death for you and for me. Circumstances so easily change our view of God. And Naomi, when she looks at her life in verse 13, she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's so caught up in her bitterness and not brokenness that she implies that God, God is against her. Bitterness is a nasty thing. It starts so small. The genesis of bitterness or the beginning of bitterness is an offense. It's an offense. We've been offended by someone or we've been offended by something. And with that offense, we have an opportunity to deal with it biblically and spiritually 
or to not deal with it at all. And, and that offense, you know, bitterness is like a little twig. An offense is like a little twig. It gets planted in your life and, and it's alive. And you know what happened to things that are alive? They grow. And as you go through life, this offense and that offense and a lack of forgiveness, what will happen is not only do you become unforgiving, but then you become resentful. The feeling of resentment, whether it's toward God or toward someone else. And then resentment grows and left unchecked becomes bitterness. And let me tell you something, friends. Bitterness grows just as wide as it does deep. Bitterness is what Naomi's dealing with here. She's distant from God. She's giving bad counsel. She's isolating herself. She just wants to go home, not really caring much about these girls. Orpah, it says that she kissed her mother-in-law and we never hear from her again. But Ruth, the Bible says, her name meaning friendship, clings for life to Naomi. Verse 15, it says, And Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. That's her counsel. Go back and worship the false gods. That's where Naomi is. Just go back and worship false gods. God's against me. There's nothing for me. Don't wait for me. I can't help you. Go back and worship your gods, which is what bitterness will do. It'll make you sound like an unbeliever and act like an unbeliever. Notice Ruth's response. She doesn't get caught up in it. She says in verse 16, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people. And notice, your God shall be my God. Where you'll die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Thank God for the Ruths in our lives who will cling to us to encourage, to build up, to help in times when, wow, we're so far from the things of God, so caught up with our emotions. While Orpah walks away, Ruth clings to Naomi. And I love this. It says in verse 18, she, when she saw that she was determined, you wouldn't be able to talk her out of it. This was a part of her personality that God used in a wonderful way. You know, sometimes we look at our personalities in life and we wish we didn't have that quirk about us or we wish we didn't act that way or see the world that way because oftentimes especially before we got saved it got us in a lot of trouble and you know you're, you're looking at it and you go if I just didn't have I seem you know for example maybe you're known as more of a clinging type person and there's certainly a, a an unhealthiness about being clingy and holding tight to someone when learning what boundaries are in relationships but I want you to know that clinginess can be redeemed by God to be encouraging like Ruth is right here that God can use that in your life. That no matter what you may be unhappy with in your life today, God can restore it, he can redeem it, and he can use it in just the way that he desires. And he can use you in wonderful ways. God uses the way we, re we were created, personality and all, for his good purposes. Even if at some point our personality wasn't used in a good or a godly way. I mean, think of this with Ruth here. As we read through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
pure and holy and without sin. And reread his lineage in Matthew chapter 4. Five women are mentioned in his genealogy. Four of them have very questionable backgrounds. For example, Tamar is mentioned. She, we learn about her in Genesis chapter 38. She's the one that committed incest with her father in the lineage of Jesus Christ, redeemed by God. Rahab was the Gentile harlot we met in Joshua chapter 2, redeemed by God and used to keep the spies safe. We also meet Ruth, an outcast Moabitess Gentile, here in Ruth chapter 1, redeemed and used for God's glory, introducing us to the truth of the kinsman redeemer. Like even in your pain, God's going to redeem your pain. You see, what we see with Ruth and Naomi is widow ministering to widow, daughter-in-law ministering to mother-in-law, as it should be. Another woman is mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, the wife of Uriah. She's better known to us as Bathsheba, the one that committed adultery, all redeemed and used in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Listen, whatever your past might be, whatever it is that you've been into, when you turn your life over to the God that loves you, God can use your past for his glory and his goodness, even as he is with Ruth here in the life of Naomi. It's the Gentile encouraging the woman of the covenant. Imagine that, how good and gracious God is to us. As Ruth is clinging to Naomi, it's just so sweet as she confesses her love for Naomi while committing herself to God. Notice in verse 16, your God is my God. There was an example of the one true God in this family. Even though Naomi's not being a very good witness here, she's not representing the one true God very well here, there has been in her life the worship of the one true God, the keeping of the covenant, even in Moab. And she said, look, I don't want to go back to the gods like Orpah. I'm not going anywhere. Your God is my God. Now, these verses are often used in a wedding ceremony when the groom and the bride, they do their personal vows and they share. They're beautiful. They're beautiful things as you watch the watch them look in each other's eyes and they'll say, hey, wherever you go, I'll go. And wherever you lodge, I'll lodge. And your people should be my people. And where you die, I'll die with you. It's all, I mean, it's beautiful, but these aren't marriage vows. These are vows from one widow to another. It's not just the kind of commitment that's reserved for marriage. It's a commitment we can make to each other in every walk of life. To commit to support and to love one another is God intended in the body of Christ. Even though Naomi was a messed up witness of God's love and grace, God interceded and overruled and intervened. And I love it. Verse 19 now. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Or you could say, is this pleasant? Has pleasant finally come home? And she said to them, do not call me pleasant. Do not call me Naomi, but call me, what does your Bible say? Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. Imagine that. Call me Mara. Why? Why should we call you bitter, Naomi? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Blaming God is 
a natural response. It's not a good response, but it's a natural response to pain and specifically to loss. We can see that Naomi's blaming God for the deaths of her husband and her sons. She's blaming God for the bitterness that's been brewing in her heart for so many years. She finally comes home after 10 years of being away. The city of Bethlehem, the house of bread, is excited. Welcome home. Pleasant has finally come home. Pleasant has finally returned. And she declares for all that would hear, don't call me pleasant. I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. Call me bitter. Just call me bitter. I have to say over the years of ministering to many people, very, very few people that I have served have been this bold just to come straight up and say, just call me bitter. No, instead what happens is try to hide it, try to put a face on, you, you try to plow through, but you've lived to the point where you have disobeyed God, like the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. You've allowed bitterness to take root in your life. And by this, as the Bible says, many have become defiled. And as Naomi's blaming God, I, I pray that you'll hear me on this because it's so important for us to receive the instruction of God today. So often in times of death, we somehow seek to blame God, especially in those deaths that we conclude are untimely. Let me just say this. For any of us that have lost loved ones, no matter their age, death always feels untimely. It always feels out of place. The Bible declares that death is an enemy. So much so that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Bible says he defeated sin and death. In, in its place by faith comes resurrection and new life. In those times that we conclude death is untimely, especially in the loss of a child, in her case, both her sons, we need to remember that it's not God's fault that death entered into the picture. One, by one man, sin entered into the world, and by that sin, death entered in. And so in a very real way, in a primary sense, man, the sin of man is responsible for death, not God. But blaming is natural. We see it in another place in the scriptures. Remember when Mary and Martha's brother was sick? His name was Lazarus. And they called for Jesus to come because they were hopeful he would come and heal their sick brother. But in the delay of the arrival of Jesus, their brother died. And as Jesus finally comes into the town of Bethany, Martha runs out to him, and what does she do? She blames him for the death of her brother. If you were only here earlier, it wouldn't have happened, Jesus. Here in the presence of life and healing and even resurrection, her heart and her feelings are those of blame, pointing the finger at the very one that gives her life. It's normal. You see, when we sorrow over death, we sorrow over our loss because our loved ones that were saved, they are in a good place. <laughs> they are where we all desire to be. They just got there a little bit earlier than us. Their last breath on earth led in to their first breath in the presence of God. 
to accept and to receive the fulfillment of all the promises that they lived by faith while they were still with us. But for us, we are the ones that sorrow. We are the ones that grieve. We are the ones that grieve and mourn our loss and what a real loss it is that so many of you have experienced. We're the ones that need God's help and encouragement and strength. And as the Lord God has allowed me to officiate many funerals over the years, I haven't done one in the last four years, and I'm not really even sure I'll ever be able to officiate another funeral. Perhaps the Lord will allow that. But in the funerals that I've officiated over the years, my heart, and when I still hear of of memorial services being here, my heart is always that God would encourage and that God would comfort those that are attending. No matter where their walk of life and no matter how they're connected to the family, that there would be encouragement, especially when it is a memorial service for a child. Because that, that is a very big trigger and temptation more than some others, to blame God for the loss. Bitterness is just around the corner, knocking on the door, wanting to come into your life. We're all going to face the temptation of bitterness, all of us, in a variety of different ways. The death of a loved one, the death of a dream, the death of a marriage, the death of a desire. I mean, we're all going to face these things that will tempt us toward bitterness. Offenses. Jesus spoke of offenses. And he said, woe to him by whom the offense comes. Because they'll come to us. And the temptation comes to all of us to live our lives with a sour disposition toward others. To somehow try to get back. And it gets covered with sarcasm. And it gets covered with cynicism. But it's bitterness nonetheless. Webster's Dictionary describes bitterness this way. Angry, hurt, resentful, harsh, unpleasant, painful disposition. Let me repeat that. An angry, hurt, resentful, harsh, unpleasant, painful disposition. And there is bitterness in this room today. And to those listening to this Bible study, unnecessarily, but it's there. And it needs to be taken out at the root. To whom I'm speaking, I don't know. But God does. That you've allowed the circumstances in your life to embitter you toward God and to embitter you toward your fellow man or a relative or a friend or a former friend. You've become so cynical and so sarcastic. Oh, it's not that some of those things can exist without bitterness. They can. But oftentimes they're just masks of hiding the hurt that you're carrying around and the anger and the resentment that has grown deep into your heart. So what do we do? How do we respond? Let me show you one more thing before we leave. Would you turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, please? Exodus chapter 15. Naomi comes in and she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And while you're turning to Exodus, the Bible says, Naomi speaking, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me pleasant, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
so deep, Naomi says, you know what, I went out full, but now I come back empty. God's against me. I don't want to be known as pleasant any longer. That, that part of my life has changed forever, she's saying. How do we deal with bitterness? What are we to do? Certainly, on a very simple scale, to extend forgiveness is one of the first ways you deal with death blow to bitterness. You walk in forgiveness. You extend it. You learn what the Bible has to say about forgiveness. We've studied those things in depth in previous studies. You can go to our website and just put the word forgive or forgiveness in there. Bible studies will pop up on the topic. If you want to email me later today, I'll see it um, probably on Tuesday, but if you want to email me later today, I'll send you a PDF on the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness and reconciliation. And you can go through it, whether it's what you need in this moment or it's preparation for the future. Forgiveness is certainly a way out. But where does forgiveness come from and how is it defined? Notice with me in Exodus 15, I draw your attention to verse 22. The children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They just finished a wonderful time of worship and adoration and appreciation for the faithfulness of God. And yet they face a trial so quickly after their time of worship, it says in verse 22, that Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. They're thirsty and they're parched. Three days in the hot, baking sun of the wilderness. And day number one, there's no water. Day number two, there's no water. Day number three, they finally come to a place of water. I picture it like seeing it like a mirage. And they all head over to it. And they begin to jump in and take it in, only to find out. Well, notice what the text says. When they came to Mara, oh, wait a minute. What's that word mean? Bitter. They could not drink the waters of Mara. For they were bitter, therefore the name of this place was called Mara. Let's read that again. Now, when they came to bitter, they could not drink the waters of bitter, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called bitter. They were greatly disappointed with the water because it was undrinkable, unusable, because it was sick and dirty and bitter. And instead of crying out to God, they blame the person that's closest to them, Moses. Because it is the people that are closest to us that suffer the greatest from our bitterness. Just like it says in Hebrews 12, that you'll defile many. And the many that are defiled, your spouse, your children, your friends, even your church family, They are crying out, it says in verse 24, they murmur against Moses, what shall we drink? As if Moses could fix the water. He had no power whatsoever of dealing with the bitterness of this water, but he could do what we read in verse 25. He could cry out to the Lord, which is always the right decision. And the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast that tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And he made a statue and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. And he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, 
for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the waters. What's the solution, Moses? God points out a tree. Take the tree and throw it in the water. And when you do that, the waters will become sweet. And isn't it true that God has pointed out a tree for you and me? This tree has a crossbeam. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And that as you walk in the forgiveness of God and you throw the cross of Jesus back into the waters of bitterness in your life, God will make them sweet. You come to the cross and die to yourself. You come to the cross and accept the forgiveness, removal of the guilt and shame. You come humbly. You come meekly. You come broken. You come bitter to the cross and God will make it sweet. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that's the solution. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that changed a bitter person into sweet. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that has sealed, has sealed your relationship with God forever by faith. You got to throw the tree into it, guys. It's the only way. You can't will yourself out of it. You can't think yourself out of it. You can't give yourself out of it. You've got to come to the cross. Jesus said, anyone wants to come and come after me and follow me, let him die to himself, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Notice the promise of God in verse 26 in Exodus is, I am the Lord who heals. You know, this is the, this is the place in the Bible where we get the phrase Jehovah Rapha. That's what it is in the Hebrew, the God who heals, Jehovah Rapha. It's one of the names of God. And the very next stop was not waters of bitterness, but God is able to take you from Mara to Elim, where there were waters, wells of fresh water and palm trees to shade you. You've got to throw the cross into the waters of Mara. It's the only way you're going to get to the palm trees and the fresh water. The rest that God promises you. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, in Ruth chapter 1, it opens up with a famine, but the chapter ends with a harvest. And that is often the process. You you, you don't feel like it's ever going to end. And you don't feel like you're ever going to get victory over this. And you look at your life right now and you think, you know, I'm this age and I'm at this place and I just don't see a change. And yet what God wants to do is he wants to bring you from famine to harvest. He wants to bring you from Mara to Elim. He wants to bring you from bitterness to sweet water and shade and comfort and encouragement. You see, we are once again reading the Bible and reading of a person's life, Ruth and Naomi. You see, Naomi comes to town, great excitement. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. I'm a bitter woman now. God's against me. But little does she know how it's going to end. She doesn't know yet. She doesn't know why Ruth was clinging to her yet. She doesn't know about the kinsman redeemer yet. She doesn't know how God's going to restore to her the joy of her salvation. She doesn't know yet, and neither do you, except that, the God, that God over and over in his, in his word will show you through the lives of people that you're going to get through this. That little by little it's going to get better. That God is going to heal you. He's going to minister to your need. So much so, that you'll be strong enough to then walk into someone else's life and help them when they're going through the deep, dark valley that you were going through. You've got to come back to the cross. 
There's no other way. There's no other way to experience, to go from bitterness to sweet without the cross and his finished work in your life. Good things. You might be in famine right now, but good things are around the corner. The harvest is just up ahead. Maybe 10 years, maybe five years, maybe three, maybe even shorter. But it's not going to be famine forever. God's got a harvest. He's ready to work in your life. Steady on and trust Him. Amen? Father, again, as we turn our hearts toward you to leave today, to be encouraged from your word, I know for some these are hard words to hear, hard words to receive. And I pray that you would just minister and comfort them, Lord. Um, you know, just, just help them with the difficulty of these words. I know uh, as the topic of bitterness is mentioned, and, and just even that burden you gave to me, Lord, to say it's here right now in this room. It's out on the radio. It's on the internet, Lord, that your Holy Spirit pricked a few people's hearts and said, that's you, that's you. And we've come to the waters thirsty and parched. And it's bitter and it's nasty, Lord. And we're mad at our leaders and we're mad at our pastors and we're mad at our family and we're, and here we are, God, crying out to you, what do I do, how do I help? And you say, there's the tree. Would you enable your church family today to throw the tree in the water so that Mara becomes sweetness? As we see later on, Naomi will become sweet once again. It takes a while, but you're faithful, God. And so, church, as you're praying right now, Henry's going to be leading us in a final song. I, I just want to encourage you during the song that you can just cry out confession to God. Maybe it's bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, it could be anything, but would you have a response to God today? Just during this last song, you might, and I would say, you know, if you're courageous enough, just be courageous. Say it out loud. Confess your sin to God. Confess your bitterness to God. Confess your present condition, the lack of the cross of Jesus Christ in the situation, how your mind has changed, how your heart has changed. And then join in on the song. Just lift a burden today. I'm not going to ask you to stand or I'm not going to ask you to admit your bitterness or anything like that. Just, this is between you and God. He's the one that gave the cross to you, not your church, not your pastor. Maybe you've been mad at a pastor. Maybe you've been mad at me. And you just need to confess that. Just ask the Lord to work in your heart, to work in your mind. You've been mad at your spouse. You've been mad at your kids and like everything around. Just confess and say, Lord, I don't want to be like this. I want to grow in grace. I want to experience healing. God, I want to experience what your Bible promises. I don't want to be Naomi. I want to be Ruth. God will answer that prayer. And then afterwards, the pastors will be up here if you need them to pray with you. Men and women on the prayer team, just come and let the Holy Spirit minister to you through the body ministry. So let's sing this and just continue to pray, continue to confess, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you today. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.